The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What does the subpoena say exactly? So you could imagine a very narrowly drawn subpoena that sort of excludes anything that would be within the president's duties and asks only about things that are necessarily sort of outside what a president should do. And where that line is would be sort of difficult to discern. But that would be, I think, the only way to kind of try to get around this immunity. And Congress almost never does that with its subpoenas, right? It's almost always a very broad subpoena asking for sort of a a vague definition of what the questions are going to be that would be the way to kind of get around the doctrine and the way that DOJ might consider a prosecution if there were some way to ensure that his testimony had was not related to his official duties. Uh, unfortunately, I think some of the questions, even they said at the hearing, you know, where was he, what was he doing during that time, they seem broad enough to include official duties. I'm Quinta Jurisic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 19th. 2022. On October 13th, the January 6th committee closed what may be its final public hearing with a dramatic vote. Unanimously, the committee members agreed to subpoena former President Donald Trump. So what happens now? Will Trump actually testify? What happens if he defies the committee? And would the Justice Department prosecute him for contempt of Congress? To talk things through, I sat down with Lawfare senior editors Molly Reynolds and Jonathan Schaub and Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes. We discussed the historical precedent for current and former presidents testifying before Congress and debated the likelihood that Trump will take the plunge and show up before the committee. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 19th. The January 6th committee subpoenaed Trump. What now? The January 6th committee voted at the close of its last and possibly final hearing to subpoena Trump himself. I think we can fairly call this kind of a grand finale uh, for the public phase of the investigation. Molly, can we start off with you just giving us the rundown on what happened and what we know about why the committee is taking this step? Sure. On one level, I don't think we should be surprised by the fact that the committee ultimately chose to do this. I think if we kind of look back over the progression of their work, um, there was lots of kind of intimations that perhaps they would ever get to this point um, of subpoenaing uh, former President Trump. They did kind of hold the fact that they were definitely going to do it under pretty uh, close wraps. Um, So at about 
12.55 p.m. uh, before the 1 p.m. very timely start of the session. They uh, made a switch um, where they kind of filed the necessary document online to indicate that they were having a business meeting instead of a hearing. And then when the um, session itself began, um, Mr. Thompson, Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, said that, you know, they were they had shifted to a business meeting so they would be able to take a vote to conduct business. Um, and then reports um, came out that that, that business would be um, subpoenaing uh, President, uh, former President Trump. In terms of sort of why now, I think other folks may have um, thoughts on this. But to my mind, I think it's just it took them until now to decide uh, that this was the right uh, thing for the committee to do. And um, they've been very careful to operate on a largely or really exclusively unanimous basis. They've been very hesitant to take any public actions that um, not all members of the committee support. And if we look back at some of the um, very early coverage of the, the committee, we see that you know they were not always in agreement on this question of whether it was going to be necessary to um, subpoena President Trump. And so um, I pulled up this morning, for example, some quotes from uh, Adam Kinzinger, one of the two Republicans in the committee, from August of 2021, so just after the committee was formed, just after it had its first hearing, the one hearing it had in 2021 with some law enforcement officers, where Kinzinger is asked by ABC's John Carl about whether the committee was going to bring in Trump. And Kinzinger says, quote, I don't know. It's going to depend on where the facts lead. We may not even have to talk to Donald Trump to get the information. There were tons of people around him. There were tons of people involved in the things that led up to January 6th. And so, um, again, we we see that the, the committee was perhaps not always in agreement on whether subpoenaing Trump would be necessary. And we also know that over the course of this year, there have been disagreements within the committee on questions around whether to send criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. So, again, my read of the situation is that it kind of took the committee went where it where the facts led it, and it took until now, October of 2022, for them to decide that the appropriate step here was to issue a subpoena to the former president. So Ben and Jonathan, I want to get your initial reactions at a high level before we dive down into the details. Ben, let me turn to you first. What do you make of the fact that the committee took this step? Well, it obviously has substantial symbolic significance. And a lot of people have uh, sort of ended the analysis there and said it is entirely a symbolic gesture. And I think that is wrong uh, for at least three reasons. The first is that if you believe, you know, the 538 prognostication or forecast for the election, the House of Representatives has about a 30 percent chance of remaining in Democratic hands. And this subpoena is a very different animal if you imagine that the life of the committee is just through a lame duck session before uh, Speaker McCarthy takes over. Then if you imagine that this is a precursor to another two years of activity by this same committee. So one significance of it as far as I'm concerned is the possibility that the committee's work is not ending shortly but that this is the opening act in the next drama of which I think there is about a 30 percent – again, the, the, the election forecasters say there's about a 30 percent chance of that. The second thing is that I don't think it is a 
impossibility that you could have a contempt vote by the end of the lame duck. If Donald Trump were to clearly and unambiguously refuse to testify, uh, the matter of holding him in contempt uh, would be a rather trivial thing to get done. Uh, the Democrats have the votes to do it and uh, could be done in committee rather quickly and on the floor at any time that the House reconvenes for, for, uh, for the lame duck. At that point, there is a completed resolution, a completed vote of contempt, uh, and it would throw it over to the Justice Department. I'm sure we'll discuss how the Justice Department would consider it, but that would be no small thing if it were to happen. And then the third reason I don't think it's merely symbolic is that I do think there is a chance that Donald Trump will comply with it, not because he is interested in complying with subpoenas, but because he loves good ratings. And, you know, the committee's gotten good ratings and he gets good ratings and you put them together and uh, you get a kind of blockbuster uh, television event and he's a kind of sucker for those. Uh, I note that in the 14-page letter that he sent in response to the committee's subpoena, he did not say whether he would or would not show up. And he's made some noises about showing up in the event that it were a live uh, hearing rather than a closed-door deposition. So I don't think that's likely, but I do think you know, this could go from a dormant symbolic gesture to a very real significant thing real fast if Trump were to decide, particularly in the pre-election period, that his attention-seeking instinct outweighs his legal interests. Jonathan, let me turn it over to you. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I have a little bit of a, a different take, I, and we can talk about it. I, I tend not to to think it really matters who wins the election uh, or whether there's a contempt vote beforehand, because I don't think it goes any farther than that. Um, and whether or not the the committee knows that or not is to me the question of whether it's symbolic. I mean, if they know that it's symbolic, if they don't, then, you know, they're going to be sorely disappointed, I think. But I do think sort of as a high level, to go back to something Molly said, you know, I think the committee probably wasn't entirely decided, but I also think they understood the historical significance of subpoenaing uh, a former president. And they understood that they needed to sort of build the case for it. And by that, I mean, and the committee said this uh, sort of in the meeting, that they've got all this information about January 6th. They've collected just reams and reams of information. They've had a, a number of people testify, but there are gaps in what they know. And those gaps could possibly be filled by someone like Meadows, but he's refused to cooperate. So they, they have established, I think, over the course of this investigation, that they have a need that at this point, the, it seems like the only person that could fill in this missing information is the former president. And that justifies the subpoena. And maybe that was, maybe that, that was needed to sort of convince some of the members, or maybe they felt like they needed to have that before they took that step. But this is true. It's been true in past commissions investigating sort of historical events that there is unique knowledge that the former president has. And if they want to do a full accounting and a full reconstruction of what happened on January 6th, 
They need to hear from the former president. So I think for them, to me, it, it, it is it is both symbolic, but also sort of in line with their mission that they don't feel like they would be true to the mission and true to the sort of role they've taken on in, in providing this accounting, providing this historical sort of reconstruction of what happened without at least you know, asking for and demanding that they get the, the, this information, which they don't have yet. So it's sort of the missing piece. So I don't think it's necessarily just a symbolic vote. I think it's for completeness. I think it's for accuracy. I think it's for you know, historical significance. Uh, and we can talk more about why. I, I don't think there's any any really possibility that this goes anywhere towards contempt, you know, past Congress, right? The, the Department of Justice is not not going anywhere with this. Yeah, so I just want to um, come in on, uh, Jonathan, something you were just talking about, which I completely agree with, which is the way that this action by the committee kind of fits in with the vision that the committee has of itself and its role in, you know, pursuing accountability for January 6th. There's, there's been um, a fair amount of reporting, I think, including a New York Times story that came out yesterday. We're recording this on Tuesday about sort of the committee seeing itself as kind of a prosecutor. It's not an analogy that I love um, in part because, you know, Congress has jobs that aren't prosecuting crimes. But I do think this notion that what the committee is up to is building as full as humanly possible an account of what happened before and during the insurrection on January 6th is really at the heart of everything that they've been up to. It's why they took so long to start to have hearings. You know, Benny Thompson said um, probably about it starting about a year ago that their goal was to get all of the facts that they could, put together the story, and then start telling the American people about it. And I completely agree that they sort of got to a point where they had as many of the facts as they felt like they were going to be able to get on this timeline and without talking to the former president. And so the next thing that they had to do was take this step where even if it doesn't materialize into either Trump's testimony or, Jonathan, as you, I think, suggested, and I think we're going to talk more about an actual prosecution for criminal contempt of Congress, that this doing this really fits into that sense that the committee has of itself and what its job has been. So, Jonathan, I want to go back to some of what you were saying about the sort of the 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 history here. This is not the first time um, that a congressional committee has asked a current or former president to come sit down, um, although some of those presidents have come in and testified uh, without a subpoena. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of where this is kind of situated in the in the history here? To what extent is this unprecedented? So it's extremely rare. There have been, so the most applicable precedent is from when Truman left office. Uh, there was allegations that there had been a sort of communist sympathizer that he had known about, that he had still put up for nomination and had allowed to be within the administration. And so there was a subpoena asking him or demanding that he testify in front of the House Committee on American Activities. And he wrote a letter back to the committee to say, you know, it would violate separation of powers for Congress to be able to compel a president. These are co-equal branches of government just as the president can't, you know, sort of summon a member of Congress to come before uh, him and testify or to give information. Congress can't do the same to a president. 
And then he took the next uh, sort of logical step, which was Congress also cannot do the same thing to a former president about things that happened while he was in office. And to do so would, would raise the same sort of separation of powers problems. So that is the the president in terms of the Justice Department's view of uh, presidential immunity and, and immunity of sort of former presidents and advisors. That is the sort of standard argument. Presidents have testified. They have gone before Congress. They have gone before committees. They've provided written statements. So there's a, there's a number of different examples. Uh, you, know, you think about Bush and, and Cheney going before the 9-11 commission, although it was not recorded. Uh, it was not under subpoena. So there, there are examples of presidents or vice presidents going and giving testimony, but a, a president or a former president's never been compelled. And the Justice Department has said, essentially, that, that Congress lacks the authority to do that. You, know, so you can sort of go back and forth on kind of where that leads us in terms of history and whether that's a valid argument, whether we should sort of buy uh, Truman's separation of powers argument. Um, but it has been sort of the foundation of a very extensive doctrine of immunity that the Justice Department has developed that they recently, in the case of Mark Meadows, sort of reaffirmed uh, as applying to you know, presidents, although they said for Meadows, they would, they would adopt a qualified privilege. So I want to walk through what the process can look like from here, starting with uh, the subpoena itself, actually. Um, so, Molly, am I correct that we have not actually seen the subpoena? And if not, when would we expect to see it? So unless uh, it's out there and um, none of us have seen it made public yet, um, as far as I know, uh, not um, not yet made public. Congress is not required to make public uh, subpoenas that it, it, it issues. What the January 6th committee has generally done is when it uh, has issued a subpoena and the person to whom uh, the subpoena was issued does not comply, and then the committee has proceeded to um, mark up and report out a contempt citation for consideration by the full house. They've generally included the subpoena as a um, exhibit in those proceedings. And so, you know, we saw eventually the Meadows subpoena and the Navarro subpoena as part, of, again, of the committee's consideration of citations of contempt under the criminal contempt statute. So my expectation is that either um, we would see it at that point, um, if it got to the point where the committee marked up a contempt citation, or I suppose, and to, this goes back to sort of Ben's comment before about Trump being motivated by things that generated attention, you know, he could release it himself if he wanted to make that part of the kind of attention he was getting for picking a fight with, as he likes to call them, the unselect committee. Yeah, um, I don't have to way. say I don't understand why he thinks that's such a good burn. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, well, he clearly um, he has he clearly identified it as his uh, term of choice for them. Um, but yes, I think that those are the, the for me, those are the two situations that I could imagine um, we would um, we would see it. And that would give us, um, again, much more clarity around exactly what has been requested of the president. Is it just testimony? Um, is it also documents? Um, at this point, we just don't know. All right. So then we come to the question of what Trump's options are. Um, I suppose he he could uh, agree right away to sit down. Um, he could just stonewall. Um, he could also try to negotiate with the committee. I'm curious if any of you want to jump in what that negotiation process might look like. Do we have any models for what that could be? Well, 
Sure. Uh, so first of all, uh, there was Gerald Ford's testimony after the Nixon pardon. Uh, there was, uh, as Jonathan mentions, uh, Bush's and Vice President Cheney's testimony to the 9-11 Commission. As a general matter, let, let's talk about what a normal president in Trump's circumstances would do, then what a normal defense lawyer in Trump's representing Trump will do. And then we can talk about Trump, who I don't think would necessarily be guided by either of those things. So the normal president in, in Trump's situation might very well uh, simply refuse citing the Truman precedent. And I agree with Jonathan that there is no obvious way to compel that. But you do risk being held in contempt. You do risk uh, that contempt citation being referred to the Justice Department and you risk looking like, as uh, I think the technical legal term for it is, a wuss. But I think the the normal president in Trump's situation simply doesn't, doesn't negotiate. The defense lawyer doesn't let the client anywhere within 100 yards of the committee because this is a guy who has uh, open criminal investigations in which he's a subject, including on the very subject that, you know, this investigation concerns. And so, uh, you know, from a defense lawyer's point of view, you use the presidential immunity to keep the president away from that. But if for any reason you had to show up, you assert the fifth. The calculation, I think, is a little bit different for Trump because he is uh, very sensitive to being seen to be, you know, ducking a fight. Uh, he loves attention, and his obsession with uh, this committee and its work and all of the so-called witch hunts against him are overpowering, and so. I would not be surprised particularly if there were a negotiation and I think the negotiation would look something like this. You withdraw the subpoena because I'm not going to do it under duress or compulsion. But if you invite me to a live hearing on national television in primetime uh, and you promise that all the networks are going to cover it and you, you know, hype it a lot, I'll, I'll show up. Yeah, I got to say, Ben, I completely disagree with you here. I mean, I, I cannot imagine that he will show up. And the reason is that he said, I'm looking at a headline now from CNN from uh, March 22nd, 2018, uh, where he uh, saying that Trump, quote, says he would still like to testify before Mueller. And this this was a drumbeat that went on for months and months. He desperately wanted to talk to Mueller. Yeah, and he so, wanted to release his tax returns right, it was, too. It was so rude that his lawyers were preventing him from talking to Mueller. Um, and I do think that you know there are many different ways in which the the current situation reminds me of the Mueller investigation. I mean, the the way that the committee was talking about the limitations on its investigation uh, reminded me a great deal of you know that they've. They have done as much as they can without Trump's testimony and in the absence of testimony from the former president himself and given the stonewalling of people around him, they've to some extent run up against a wall. 
And so then there is this question of, okay, do you want to pick a fight with him or not? Mueller famously chose not to go that route after many, many months of fruitless negotiations with Trump's team and eventually just ended up getting ridden testimony. But despite all of his bluster and how much he wanted to really, really, really talk to Mueller, Trump ultimately didn't go there. And then when you look at the committee – there there was there's at least one instance in which a witness said that they would only testify if they were able to do so live in front of the camera. That was Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, who now, of course, is under indictment for seditious conspiracy. And the committee didn't go for that either. I think not surprisingly, given how sort of tightly choreographed all of the hearings so far have have been. So I guess I would be surprised if he actually did end up showing up voluntarily or rather, if he if he did end up showing up both on his side and on the committee's side. Yeah, I, I kind of in between. Um, I have these visions back. So what I when I was in the Justice Department was during the Benghazi hearings. And, you know, Benghazi committee was doing a lot of this similar kind of approach of keeping things under wraps, uh, doing depositions, not doing public hearings. But there was a negotiation for Hillary Clinton's testimony. And uh, there was also at the time negotiations about whether President Obama would testify. And the committee took a subpoena off the table very early on. So we're not going to try to do that. But with Hillary Clinton, it was back and forth. And she ultimately said, I'll do it, but only if it's live. And, you know, she sat in, in all most recounts sort of owned the committee sitting there. Not that Trump for 10 would, hours for 10 hours. Right. And just responding to everything. And not that Trump would put on a similar performance, but I, I could see him saying, right, I can go out here, I can have this audience, I can say everything that I want to about, you know, elections, conspiracy, and then if they ask me something I don't want to say, I'm just going to, you know, say that's privileged. You know, I'm going to cite executive privilege. And so, uh, and I, I do think uh, even a normal president, as sort of Ben was saying, you know, I think would engage some with the committee. I, I think they've got the backstop of always saying, I'm immune, you can't subpoena me, you can't force me to do it. And depending on how important they thought the inquiry was, depending on you know the actual need for the information, I think you could see a normal president sort of go back and forth a little bit and, and say, okay, I'll answer some questions, you know, some interrogatories or something like that. But if they were you know, sort of wanting to show some cooperation but I, I could see Trump being called to this kind of national audience where he gets to you know, say whatever he wants about the sixth, about the committee and about the election. Obviously, his lawyers are going to be trying to physically restrain him to stop him from doing that um, and would, would, would try to prevent that at all costs. But you can sort of see the appeal to him of that kind of spectacle. Yeah, I really agree with that. So just to respond to Quinta's point for a moment, I want to emphasize I did start this by saying I thought this was a low probability possibility, but something that uh, there was an outside chance could happen. But the second thing, you know, I agree that Trump uh, danced with uh, Mueller and ultimately refused uh, an interview with Mueller. Uh, is not a primetime spectacle on television. And Trump, you know, has been uh, denied certain types of national audiences, particularly uh, through the removal of his Twitter and Facebook accounts. He really only gets to speak to, you know, the sort of Fox News OAN type audiences now. And I think the real question will turn for him on whether he thinks it's a forum in which he can dominate 
or whether he thinks it's a forum in which he will get tripped up and have difficulty. And because he's so uh, consistently, first of all, he's genuinely charismatic and so he's not always wrong in making this judgment, but he has a very high opinion of his own uh, verbal capability. And I think the opportunity to go in front of a national audience uh, live and say the election really was stolen, uh, all of this is lies and you guys are the latest iteration of a witch hunt and I hate Cassidy Hutchinson and I hate uh, – what's his name? Jacobs and Mike Pence was a traitor. I, I think that will have a real appeal for him and so I don't, I don't want to say I think it is likely that he will – comply with this subpoena or negotiate his way to some kind of appearance. But I don't think it's impossible either. And I uh, and I do agree with Jonathan that, you know, even a a normal president faced with this situation, when those have happened in the past, Truman is actually the exception slamming the door on it. Uh, in other situations, there have been uh, pretty substantial negotiations and often some kind of voluntary appearance. So the other alternative here that I was wondering about is whether Trump might sue in advance in civil court to block the subpoena, which is a tactic that his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, took. Jonathan, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that tactic looked like when Meadows took it? And tell me whether whether I'm wrong here um, or, or whether that might be an approach that Trump could take. He might, you know, essentially the, the so committees issued the subpoena. Meadows was claiming uh, the same defense that, that Trump would have, this kind of absolute testimonial immunity. And instead of sort of waiting for the committee to sue him or waiting for them, the uh, house to hold him in contempt, he sort of uh, went to the court first, right, and, and to try to preclude that and to say, I am immune from testifying. I want you to adjudicate this immunity and hold the subpoena invalid, essentially. It's actually the same tactic that, uh, if you remember from Trump's impeachment hearing uh, investigation, the, the first one, uh, Charles Kupperman and John Bolton both did this when they were subpoenaed or threatened with a subpoena for Bolton. So it's kind of a way for the witness to re remove the fear of contempt and to have adjudication of this immunity without having to sort of have put the opportunity or the chance of being charged criminally. So Trump could do that. I have a hard time sort of seeing why he would. Uh, and a, part of it is because I think the, the chances of Justice Department sort of going forward on a contempt prosecution are, are so vanishingly small that uh, if he does that, he's going to have to put evidence and he's going to have to be sort of subject to the judicial procedures, um, you know, discovery requests. There's a lot of things that go along with it. I think his lawyers wouldn't want to do it when he's got a, a pretty strong defense without having to do that. So to me, it's it's a thing that, that some witnesses have taken as a, when they're not quite sure, when they even when they might want to comply, but they're kind of have the defense. I'm going to turn it over to the court and let the court decide. Uh, I just I don't see Trump taking that option, but it is it is available for him. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really really want it all to work out while you're away. monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Okay, so let's then talk about what happens if we do get to the point where uh, the House votes to hold Trump in contempt. Molly, can you walk us through what that looks like and how it's worked in the uh, numerous uh, previous cases where the January 6th committee has held people in contempt? Sure. So um, as we were talking about before, the first thing that would happen is that the committee itself would vote on a resolution um, holding uh, the former president in contempt of Congress. That would then go to, um, I think in all likelihood, go to the full House for um, for a vote. If uh, the contempt citation is reported by the committee during a congressional adjournment, um, uh, it's my understanding that in that situation, the Speaker of the House can certify the contempt citation and uh, send it over to the Justice Department. But I think um, in this case, the most likely thing is that the full House would vote on it sometime during the lame duck. Um, and then at that point, um, as um, I think both Ben and Jonathan have mentioned, it's in the hands of the Justice Department. And I think I at least would uh, love to hear Jonathan talk about um, his belief that um, that is basically where it would end, is that the Justice Department would be um, pretty unlikely to prosecute um, under the criminal contempt of Congress statute. Generally, the so there's this sort of mentioned this line of precedent, right, that says advisors to the president are immune. The department has on a number of occasions uh, refused to prosecute contempt referrals based on that immunity with either former aides to sitting presidents or aides to sitting presidents, such as you know, it's happened with former White House counsel Don McGahn. President Obama claimed immunity for one of his advisors, David Seamus. And so the Department of Justice has said in OLC opinions, you know, if there is a immunity then there can be no contempt, there can be no prosecution can go forward because to do so would sort of violate the separation of powers, would violate this constitutional doctrine of immunity. In the January 6th investigation, this has come up uh, at least four times, although on a couple of other occasions as well. And so, so Bannon mentioned this a little bit, although he largely talked about executive privilege. Mark Meadows is the sort of most on-point example. He raised this. His lawyer, who was a former Justice Department official, wrote a, a, an editorial in the Washington Post, sent a letter to Congress sort of laying out all these past immunity decisions and saying he was immune. Same thing with Dan Scavino. And then Peter Navarro came along and, and said executive privilege. Uh, he didn't have a lawyer to sort of articulate it but also sort of raised some of these issues. And the Department of Justice prosecuted Navarro and Bannon and did not prosecute Meadows and Scavino. And if you look at the Bannon prosecution, you know, Bannon's relied on some of these OLC opinions. And the, the judge in the Bannon case has said, you know, none of these apply to you, right? None of these are on point. And so you can't claim this as a defense. In the Meadows case, the Department of Justice actually submitted a brief 
saying that Meadows had qualified immunity only. This is the first time the Department of Justice has said this. But if you read that brief carefully, it's it's very clearly distinguishing between an aide and uh, the actual former president. And, and the Department of Justice has been, you know, these past opinions are based very clearly on the Truman precedent, on the principle that neither a sitting nor a former president can be subpoenaed. And so I think Trump fits very sort of clearly within these opinions. And we can talk about, you know, the, the kind of acts that are at issue and the t- what the testimony is about. But it's very hard to draw a distinction between what the Department of Justice has said before uh, presidents are immune from and what's happening here. Uh, so I don't think that so for the, a prosecution to go forward would mean to repudiate sort of this a number of opinions that it, even you know this administration has refused to do in following the Meadows brief. And if they went forward, they also have the defenses that, that Trump could raise, that Bannon has tried to raise, right, where he can say these past opinions sort of showed me that this was uh, an argument, that this was illegal for me to, to refuse the subpoena. And so I can't be prosecuted when I'm just relying on past statements of the government, which I think would be a, a very strong defense. So even if the department were inclined to go forward as a sort of logical constitutional matter, which I don't think they will be because of these past precedents, the the prosecutors on the ground are going to look at this and say he has a defense that you know we're never going to be able to get a conviction over. It's given enough trouble with the Bannon case, and that's not even close to on point. So I find it I think it's very unlikely, oh, vanishingly small percentage as I said earlier that that there would be any sort of movement to prosecute him for criminal contempt given these these past opinions that OLC has issued. I agree with that, but I also think there is. And and particularly because the because of the point that Jonathan just made about the way prosecutors are going to see the defense, I don't see this as a likely contempt case for the Justice Department to prosecute. I do think it offers a little bit of an opportunity for the Justice Department to think about the parameters of the what we might call the Truman Doctrine or the, the Truman Letter. So imagine that – take it out of the January 6th context and imagine that uh, Donald Trump in the Oval Office murdered, cooked and ate Jared Kushner um, and that a subsequent investigative committee uh, subpoenaed him for uh, – not for any uh, information about his presidential decision making or his – advice he was receiving from Jared Kushner before the act, but for, you know, in the context of its investigation of presidential cannibalism. I think the Justice Department would find a way to distinguish Trump's refusal to show up in that situation from Truman's uh, refusal to show up before the HUAC. And so the question then becomes how far outside the boundaries of presidential, legitimate presidential conduct do you have to be uh, or plausible, plausibly presidential conduct do you have to be before the parameters, you're sort of outside the parameters of what the Justice Department has embraced as uh, presidential immunity. And 
I don't posit an answer to that question, but I do think Trump's conduct in the period between the election, the period that the committee is looking at between the election where you make an affirmative decision that irrespective of the results of the election, you are not going to – you are going to claim you won and – you know, and and not acknowledge and not initiate a transition, not do the things your oath requires of you. And, you know, going to the ellipse to intentionally stoke a riot that you intend to push to, you know, maybe hang the vice president. I do think you're getting into territory that looks a little bit more like cannibalism in the Oval Office than it does like you know, uh, some of the stuff that the Justice Department would be comfortable protecting under the doctrine of, of, of presidential immunity. So it's not, it's not that I disagree with Jonathan about what's likely to happen here. It's just that I think I sort of scratch my head and say, what facts would you have to change here before the analysis would be different? Or would the department take a subpoena to, you know, the the Eden Kushner subpoena and say, you know, well, I mean, Truman <laughs> refused to show up. And so that's really the doctrine here. And I, I just do think this is an opportunity for them to think a little bit about what the limits of that idea are, if there are any limits, because I think if there are any limits, we're pretty close to them. I have to say I, I did not uh, anticipate that this podcast would take such a turn into Donner Party territory. But Jonathan, this this gets to something that I wanted to ask you about, which is how the previous court rulings on executive privilege in the January 6th context might or might not speak to this. Because Ben's description of uh, Trump's hypothetical acts of cannibalism are obviously well outside the scope of presidential duties. But they did remind me of some of the language in the D.C. Circuit's opinion in uh, Trump v. Thompson, which had to do with Trump's efforts to uh, block the National Archives from handing over information to the January 6th committee, where the D.C. Circuit essentially said, look, so you know Biden has explicitly declined to invoke privilege. And given that Trump's uh, invocation of privilege is that it's not dispositive, but also January 6th is essentially so bad that the committee has a, and I'm quoting here, a uniquely weighty interest in investigating it, that there is something about this particular event that is just so dire um, that it kind of trumps, no pun intended, potentially normal executive privilege considerations. Does that speak at all to the testimonial immunity question or to, to how DOJ might consider it? Or is that really a separate issue? No, really great question. And, and um, so a couple things, although I will say Ben's resorted to the, the favorite trick of a law professor, right? If you, if you can't say that the, there's something wrong with cannibalism, then there's something wrong with your legal theory. So you give them the, can, give them the cannibalism hypo and and if they can't deal with that, then they're they're in trouble. I just wait, uh, wait, <laughs> and wait. Before you go on, I I I think I I don't want to be demeaned as a mere law professor invoking cannibalism. <laughs> I am invoking a cannibalism in the Oval Office involving a named family member of the president. That that is, I think. It's not an ordinary cannibalism hypothetical. Yeah, you, you've taken it much farther. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's right. <laughs> um, 
So, so to your question, I think there's two things that are that are going on. Uh, you know, one is what you raised about this this compelling need of the committee and the the extraordinary events of January 6th. And so the the problem, something I've written about, the problem with the immunity doctrine, at least as OLC has articulated, is that it is absolute. And so it doesn't take into account anything about the need of Congress, about the extraordinary nature of the events. And so Trump v. Thompson, which I think, as Ben has, has written and talked about, kind of forecloses almost any executive privilege claim related to January 6th, because it says, you know, the, the interest in confidentiality is overcome by these extraordinary events. And the Biden administration has taken that approach as well. That simply doesn't apply, at least as DOJ has articulated immunity, because immunity is absolute. And so it's not qualified. It doesn't take into account any of congressional need. But I do, it's not, to go back to Ben's example, and some of the other litigation going on about January 6th, the civil litigation against President Trump. And the question in the civil litigation is, is he immune for the acts that he was taking? Were they official acts for which he enjoys immunity? Or were they acts taken in his personal or private capacity that he can be subject to civil suit for? And so that question is actually somewhat relevant to the question of uh, testimonial immunity. And so the way the Justice Department has said it is that uh, the president and advisors are absolutely immune for subpoena for testimony about uh, their official duties. It's a very sort of vague statement. There hasn't been a lot of, as, as Ben was saying, that there hasn't been a lot of clarification about what that means, what official duties mean. The Trump administration took a very broad interpretation of that in finding that uh, Kellyanne Conway was immune for actions she took promoting political uh, political candidates that the uh, the Office of Special Counsel said was violated the Hatch Act. So it's sort of very political. Even though it was political, the Trump administration included, well, she was speaking as a White House person because she was speaking as a White House person. She was acting as a White House person, and therefore she's absolutely immune from testifying about any of that. So, and I think one thing you could do here or think about is what does the subpoena say exactly? So you could imagine a very narrowly drawn subpoena that sort of excludes anything that would be within the president's duties and asks only about things that are necessarily sort of outside what a president should do. And where that line is would be sort of difficult to discern. But that would be, I think, the only way to kind of try to get around this immunity. And Congress almost never does that with its subpoenas, right? I mean, it's almost always a very broad subpoena asking for sort of a, a vague a definition of what the questions are going to be. That would be the way to kind of get around the doctrine and the way that DOJ might consider a prosecution if there were some way to ensure that his testimony had was not related to his official duties. Uh, unfortunately, I think some of the questions, even they said at the hearing, you know, where was he? What was he doing during that time? They seem broad enough to include official duties. And I think as long as those are included in it, he, he fits within the doctrine as it exists today. Molly, I want to ask you whether you think there's a, a risk here of this kind of backfiring um, in terms of how we think about congressional power. Certainly the, you know, the the site of the committee uh, voting in real time unanimously to subpoena Trump is a really powerful one. Definitely a, a real sort of banner moment in congressional oversight. On the other hand, if where this ends up is 
that the House, you know, holds Trump in contempt. It goes to the Justice Department and the Justice Department says, oh, man, sorry, testimonial immunity, not much we can do. Uh, That seems to set a really bad precedent in terms of what it says about Congress's ability to investigate a former president. Could this backfire? So I I think there I'll talk in a minute about the challenges to Congress of sort of taking questions like this to the courts. But I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing it reminds us of is the degree to which Congress's oversight powers have come to rely so heavily on the federal courts to enforce congressional requests for information. Um, Obviously, subpoenaing a former president to get information about his role in an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol is a a pretty extreme example of situations in which Congress is seeking information uh, that it uh, is unlikely to get. But just more generally, certainly in the past two years, in the past four years, um, uh, in the past six years, we've seen lots of, and going back further than that, um, we've seen lots of examples where um, a congressional committee is trying to get information, um, it is stonewalled by the executive branch, and then it is forced to go to court, usually uh, in the context of civil proceedings to compel cooperation, uh, but it is forced to go to court to try to get uh, information that it can't get otherwise. Um, and so I think this just really illustrates, again, the way in which um, Congress has come to, um, to rely on the courts as kind of its muscle for trying to, to get information. Another thing I think it reminds us of is in our current political environment with high levels of macro political competition. So really a really competitive environment for control of Congress um, between the between the parties, how sensitive um, sustained congressional oversight efforts are to um, shifts in congressional power. And with really polarized parties, the notion that kind of what's going to be happening in the oversight space is going to swing wildly um, with shifting congressional majorities. I would actually argue more wildly than it swings in the legislative context often. And so that, again, um, and that's not so much of a, a backlash, um, but it's it, again, reminds us of the limits of Congress's power uh, in this area in the, the contemporary um, environment. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is the notion that so Ben put on the table before, you know, some probability that Democrats actually do retain control of the House. Um, I I'm not sure I would put as high as the folks at 538, but, you know, it's not zero. Um, But even if that happened and we were in a world where Democrats still control the House um, and the Justice Department declines to prosecute a criminal contempt citation, we did end up in a world where um, Congress, a democratically controlled House, attempted to pursue civil enforcement against Trump. There, I would also remind us that we have seen um, in recent years Federal courts um, issue decisions that can be sort of a mixed bag for Congress and can uh, limit or sort of put down tests or lines where they didn't previously exist. Here I'm thinking of things like the Supreme Court's decision in the Mazars case um, that can have longer reaching consequences for Congress. Um, there's um, I'm also thinking of an instance that with the January 6th committee where they had a, um, a subpoena out to um, the Republican National Committee for um, certain records. They got a favorable decision at the district court level in D.C. 
that, um, among other things, kind of legitimized the committee. It uh, rejected some arguments that um, had been made around the committee not being properly constituted, that sort of thing. So they got a favorable decision at the district court level, and then they drew a really bad panel for the um, for the committee's purposes um, on the on the D.C. Circuit, and um, it's sort of believed that that's one of the reasons they ultimately withdrew that subpoena and did not continue pursuing the case given the timeline that they're under. So this I say all this to just remind us that this is not like most of what we've talked about is in the context of this being about a former president. Um, but there are other kind of congressional power equities and things to think about as we imagine the possible outcomes from um, this contempt citation. Or what we would imagine will be a contempt citation, putting aside Ben's possibility for the moment that Trump does choose that he would come in and and want to appear on, say, national television. I want to make sure that we talk about something that's been looming over this, but that we've we've only touched on directly a few times, which is obviously the upcoming midterms. So as as Ben and Molly have mentioned, there is a, a chance, I think it's fair to say, a relatively small chance that the Democrats could hold on to the House, assuming they don't. How does the ticking clock affect what's going to happen here? Does that create a a need on the committee's part to negotiate perhaps differently than they might otherwise? Does that mean that we should expect a contempt citation right out of the gate? Ben, I know you you were saying at the top that you felt like this could potentially move very quickly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So there are a number of issues uh, that relate to the end of the Congress. One is the question, and none of this will be decided until the until the control of both houses are determined, because as long as there is a significant chance that the work of the committee will continue, it is going to act like that is a possibility. Uh, but at the point at which it is clear that there is a Republican majority in the House, the the focus of the committee will shift in two directions. One is uh, wrapping up its business, finishing its report, uh, which is, of course, it is tasked with doing and uh, won't be different in character from the presentation that were made in the hearings, but will be very different in depth and uh, and citations and the availability of materials. The second is uh, the disposition of the committee's materials. And this I know is something that the committee has given some thought to. But the material that is not either released publicly or removed from uh, the House is subject to the whims and dispositions of the next uh, leadership – uh, which could, of course, change the composition of the committee, get rid of the committee altogether. Uh, and so here you have to ask the question, who is going to be in control of the Senate? Because one possibility is that the Senate will essentially pick up this particular oversight banner if it is under clear democratic leadership. Another possibility is that the material will simply be released uh, and the committee – has uh, made noises about releasing a lot of its material. There is a very large volume of material. uh, And I think a lot of journalists and historians very badly want that material released. Uh, And so I think all of those are going to be decisions that are made immediately following the – following clarity on who runs both 
houses of Congress, both of those questions will be more important after the election than the question of whether they eventually do get Trump's testimony. I have to believe that if Trump is going to cooperate, it's going to be before the midterms, not after. But that's uh, just my gut instinct. I do think it's uh, Ben raised this earlier, but you know the the subpoena will expire. So if they were going to if they were going to pursue sort of civil uh, action that Molly was talking about, they would they, the Democrats need to stay in the majority to sort of maintain that kind of civil action. But the the contempt would be with the Justice Department. So if they do decide, you know the Republicans sort of take over the House and they want to hold the vote for contempt, if they're able to do that in the long, in the lame duck session, then it would be with the Justice Department and there would be nothing that the Republican majority could do to sort of stop that from going forward. The contempt would be complete and it would just be a decision by the Justice Department. Yeah. So, Molly, I wanted to ask, you know, what, what happens, let's say Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker with a Republican House and, you know, hold some kind of a vote essentially saying in January – Sure, I know that you know the the previous House said that uh, we were holding Trump in in contempt, and now we have this contempt citation before the Justice Department. But actually, you know, we'd like to take it back. Um, can he can he do that? Obviously, the House is not a continuing body, and so I'm not even sure if a new House can undo acts of the old House in that way. But would that be possible? And what significance, if any, would it have? So I'd actually love to hear Jonathan's thoughts on this um, as well. You're right in saying that the House um, is not a continuing body. That is, in fact, why the subpoena itself would expire at the end of the Congress. And so even if Democrats did retain the majority, they would have to um, reissue the um, the subpoena. The House rules now have a provision that makes um, that even easier to do, assuming uh, uh, the majority stays um, in, in the same hands. There's a provision in the House rules that basically makes it easier for the chair of a committee to issue uh, to reissue a subpoena before even the committee is um, is formally organized. But uh, I'd love actually to hear uh, Jonathan's thoughts on this question of um, you know could uh, you know Jonathan you were just talking about the contempt citation being a completed action if the House does in fact vote on it and transmit it to the Justice Department before the end of the year. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts about, you know, whether a Republican conference led by Speaker McCarthy could undo it in any way. I, I mean, I, I don't think they could. I'm, I, I was going to say I'm interested in your thoughts, too. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, sort of the way the contempt statute is written is, you know, there, there is the sort of the act of contempt, which is the failure to comply with the subpoena. The, the House, or if the House is in uh, adjournment, the Speaker you know, certifies that over to the Department of Justice. And at that point, I don't think the House has any remaining authority under the criminal statute, right? I mean, certainly they might, you might think they have some influence, or maybe that, maybe that makes the Justice Department uh, more hesitant to go, to go forward. But I think as a formal matter, you know, once the crime has been referred to the Department of Justice and in the way the statute's written, it's with the U.S. Attorney uh, for the District of Columbia. If and it's and even as the OLC opinions are written as well, it's within the U.S. Attorney's discretion, right? It's at that point the Department of Justice's discretion whether to bring the case or not. And I, I think they can try to influence that, but I don't think they have any formal authority to to stop it. Another way to think about it is that the crime is completed when you refuse the testimony and the House votes that you refused 
uh, that you're in contempt and you just as you can't undo a murder cannibalism, uh, you can't undo a contempt. It's not like a civil contempt where you can purge yourself of the contempt by complying. It's a completed criminal act. Yes. Yeah, so the, just the one thing I'll add is that when I went looking for um, any relevant previous examples of um, what the House had done in a, um, a similar situation, the one that I um, identified, which is an important way sort of not exactly analogous to what we're talking about now, actually involves the contempt citation um, against EPA Administrator Ann Gorsuch um, in the 1980s, where here, again, it's important to note that the Justice Department was had already declined to prosecute her for criminal contempt. In 1982, the House holds Gorsuch in contempt. In the new Congress in 1983, there's a subsequent House vote on a resolution, and I'm, I'm reading here from the resolution, that says that this vote um, of the House, quote, constitutes a purging of the aforementioned resolution of December 16, 1982, certifying that compliance had been affected and that further proceedings concerning the contumacious conduct of the witness are unnecessary. So um, again, these circumstances are different. Um, and I don't know what would have happened if, say, um, you know, as Jonathan was, was saying um, when he was discussing the decision about prosecution being in the hands of the U.S. attorney, that he would be able to make a different choice. But this is, again, when I when I went searching for the most um, relevant comparison case, this is what I came up with. So it's a fascinating little case. And just for those who are wondering, two in- interesting oddities about this case One is that Ann Gorsuch is, in fact, the mother of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. And secondly, I believe – Jonathan will correct me if I'm wrong about this. I believe this is the case that gave rise to – eventually to the Supreme Court's decision in Morrison v. Olson. That's that's right, both of those. And it's also – one of the most foundational cases in terms of establishing the OLC doctrine about privilege and immunity and the decision whether or not to prosecute. And so it's, I didn't know that, Molly. It's a really interesting fact. But I will say the OLC opinions talk about that instance of refusal to prosecute, you know, ones that, that post-date that vote. And I have never heard any of them or seen any of them mention that fact as, as somehow relevant. So it's it's interesting um, that it hasn't been emphasized before. I am. I am glad that my particular journey <laughs> down this aspect of the Ann Gorsuch rabbit hole has uh, put something new on the table. I will just say one last thing um, to in this for the sake of completeness in our discussion of congressional contempt, because I know there are some Lawfare podcast listeners who are fans of um, trying to bring back inherent contempt. I will note that even in a situation where the committee or and the House attempted to exercise its inherent contempt powers against former President Trump. We have jurisprudence going back to the 19th century uh, that says that when Congress exercises its inherent contempt powers, uh, it can't hold the contemptor past the end of a legislative session. So just in case anyone is wondering if that is on the table, um, that would also not um, be a particularly effective tool in this case. A month and a half in the congressional jail. Handcuffed to a conference table. All right, let's end it there. Thank you all for joining. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachihawo, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.